Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues through a new series that focuses on the family. The series is called Families by the Book. In this series, we take a look at what real biblical parenting looks like in the home. Today's talk is titled, The Dance, Part 1. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around to the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. Back in ninth grade PE, I walked out into gym class thinking we were going to play basketball. Um, Shoot, I would have been happy just to run laps at this point, but when they started lining us up, boy, across from girl, tallest to shortest, we started to see the writing on the wall. My PE teacher, my wrestling coach was going to teach us how to dance. We were none too happy about it, but we thought if we're going to go along with this, we, you know, at least maybe I can get you know, stuck with a pretty girl. And so we're counting up the line to see which girl we're going to get paired up with, whether or not we're going to end up with a cheerleader or that quiet girl that wears horse t-shirts in the back of the library. We weren't quite sure. Frankly, I would have been very happy to get the girl, the quiet girl. Instead, I got the girl who, uh, how do I put this in a kind way? She had the mouth of a truck driver and carried skull in her back pocket. That was my first foray into dancing and learning how to do, not modern dance, but like the waltz, the foxtrot. They were trying to make civilized gentlemen out of these ninth grade boys. And so uh, I'm with this girl, and the first thing they teach you is that the man is, you know, you you, you touch the girl here and here gently, you know, and and the man leads. And so a, a gentle just little nudge on the side shows we're going this way, a little pull of the hand here, and you go this way, the man leads. And the, the girl was, in theory, supposed to follow. But this girl had the grace of a rabid grizzly bear. You ever try to wrestle one of those? And that's, that's about what my dance was starting to look like. And so we're, I'm trying to lead her across the floor, but she had other ideas in mind. And so we're, we're trying to make our way, and she's getting frustrated with me. I'm getting frustrated with her. Eventually, at one point in time, we just kind of pushed away from each other. We're just folded our arms, and we're looking around the gymnasium, trying to see everybody else seems like they're having a good time. And they're, they're moving across the floor, and they're laughing, and they're giggling, they're having a good time. And then here's me with a grizzly bear, you know, and just, you know, I couldn't lead her without a can of pepper spray. But everybody else seems to be having a good time, and I was just waiting for the music to end so that maybe by God's grace I could switch dance partners. Can marriage ever feel like that? where you do, you're not quite sure how you just ended up with this person that you're seated next to? You know, was it with all the grace of lining people up tallest to shortest? We just kind of ended up with somebody and you're just trying to make this dance work out. Ideally, the husband's leading. Maybe he does it, maybe he doesn't. Your wife is supposed to follow in some way. You're supposed to work in a harmonious fashion together, but honestly, you're kind of stepping on each other's toes and you're hurting one another and you're kind of pushing away from one another and you're looking around on Facebook and everybody else seems to be having a good time in their marriage. They're showing pictures on Facebook of water skiing in the Bahamas, you know, and you're folding clothes next to your husband who's slurping soup. And it's just just this dry, stale existence. Is that what marriage is? And you're wondering, as you're pushing away from each other, would life just be happier if I had a new dance partner? 
spoiler alert, by the way, it's not because you're still bringing your flaws into that next marriage. And statistically, second and third marriages divorce even more often than the first. And so more often than not, your answer isn't simply finding a new dance partner. It's learning how to dance with the person God gave you, the person he lined you up with. And so this is called the dance part one because it's a two-part message. You really can't listen to one message apart from the other, but by necessity, we're gonna have to split these up and divide them. This is the dance part one. We're going to begin where God begins with a wife. Did you notice in every passage where the Bible teaches on marriage, whether it's 1 Peter 3, Colossians 3, or in our text today, by the way, Ephesians chapter five, every single time God begins with a woman, why do you think that is? I mean, the man is supposed to lead, right? Ideally then why, when it comes to marriage, does God always begin talking to the woman first and then the man? It's not accidental. A man cannot lead if the wife doesn't let him. He can't do his job. Now, I realize even as we have just mentioned, as little as we have about the Bible, as little as we have about marriage already, there may be those who are possibly here today or, or who are listening online who are hissing under their breath at the idea that the husband is supposed to be the leader of the home. They may be whispering words like sexism, um, chauvinism, misogyny, um, words like this. Are these fair descriptors of what the Bible is teaching in the home? Can I say with just with gentleness and love, if you today are, consider yourself to be a born-again believer and you believe that a complementarian marriage like what is being described in Ephesians 5 is sexist and misogynistic and all of that kind of stuff, can I tell you, it's not because you got those ideas from the Bible. It, it's an indicator that your thinking and your worldview has been shaped by your culture and not the Bible. All of us will either interpret the world using the Bible or we will interpret the Bible through the lens of the world and we will become a judge of God's word rather than a doer. That's what James 4.11 is talking about. When we do the word of God, it means that we trust God, we believe God, uh, we trust him with this, we believe God is righteous, and so we're gonna do it his way when we're a doer. But James 4.11 talks about if we are not doing the word of God, it's because we don't trust the God of the Bible. We don't believe that his way truly is best. And now he says we have become a judge of God's word. I will decide if that's still appropriate within the culture that we live today. And so we're going to look at Ephesians 5. Hopefully you found your way there. We're just gonna look at three short verses, 22, 23, and 24. Each of those is going to make up one of the points of our message. We're going to talk about that word that nobody likes to talk about, submission, okay? We're just gonna talk about that. It may not be what you think it is, by the way. There's a lot of negative overtones that go to this. People think of the, the patriarchy, you know, and just, and just rude, overbearing men stomping on women. And you can find places in the world where, where men still do that. Men haven't always been kind to women in society, have they? They just haven't. And you can go to certain parts of the world, Muslim countries, where they still make their wives wear a beekeeper suit, you know, and they, they just they keep them just oppressed. They, don't, they aren't allowed religious instruction. They aren't allowed to go to school and all these other things. That is not what the Bible is describing when it talks about wives submit yourselves unto your husbands. But that leads us to our first point we're gonna see in verse 22. Submission to your husband demonstrates first a submission to God because God is the one that teaches it. 
Verse 22, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord means that a wife doesn't submit to her husband until she first submits to God. The reason she is submissive to her husband isn't him and his intrinsic qualities. She submits to her husband because she's first submitted as unto the Lord. She believes, like Psalm 119, 137 says, righteous are you, O Lord, and righteous are your rules. Because God is righteous, whatever God says, I just as a believer have an innate belief that if God said it, it's true. If God says it, it's right. I'm not gonna argue with God, I'm not gonna try to explain this away, how it's not any longer applicable in our culture. I'm just going to believe that God is right. And so as to the Lord means that we submit to, our ladies submit to their husbands, as unto the Lord, they're trusting him. They believe that all authority comes from God. Romans 13, chapter 13 says, wives, or that's Ephesians 5, 22. Uh, but Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Now those governing authorities, he's talking broadly here. They could be governing authorities in your school, if you're a teacher and you're under a principal. It could be governing authorities at a church, could be governing authorities out in society that a policeman pulls you over, governing authorities being the home, domestic, that, that the wife is asked to submit to her husband. He says, every authority has been established by God. He says, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist, exist have been instituted by God. Remember that this was written when who was on the throne? Nero. The guy who burned Christian at his garden parties. He says, whoever resists authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Can God ever allow a bad leader in our life, by the way? He can and does. God in Isaiah called Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. This is the man who erected a gold statue of himself and said, everybody worship me. The man who threw Daniel in the lion's den, the man who threw the three, brother, or the three friends into the fiery furnace. God called him my servant. In other words, I put him there for a reason. I wanted him to oppress my people. I warned my people about their sin, they wouldn't listen, and he drug them out of the land. He was my servant. And so there may be times where authorities that we are under, be it our boss, our teacher, or others, are ordained by God because God wants to work on us. He actually wants us sometimes to experience pain to cause us to be more like Jesus who also experienced pain in his life. And so, Every time we obey the speed limit, every time we pay our taxes, it's a way of showing reverence to God and trust that God has the leaders over me that he wants and they're there for a reason. So what is this word submission anyway? We've got to define our terms here. It's that Greek word, it's one of those few times you hear that Greek word all the time, it's hupotasso. Now tasso is a word that means to arrange in an orderly manner, sort of like a ball team. It's the difference between church league ball and organized college volleyball. You ever play church league volleyball? Yeah, or just, you know, just recreational volleyball? There's not a lot of rules. You know, you rotate through, you serve it over, and if you can get it over within three hits, that's great. Uh, but anyway, you can do it. One of these numbers, one of these numbers, one of these numbers, one of these numbers, you know. It doesn't matter how you get it over, just get the ball over, right? That's church league ball. And my wife used to ref church league ball, and they'd always tell her, hey, don't call everything that they do. So these guys that are coming up under going, you know, and carrying the ball, just 
let it go. You know, it's sort of in church league volleyball, it's every man for himself. There was no king in Israel and every man did that which is right in his own eyes. So if you want to charge from the back row and you want to spike it, you go for it, chest bump your buddy and you move on. That's church league ball. It's just everybody's doing kind of what they want to. It doesn't usually lead to wins. It's nothing you're proud of. There's nobody watching highlight reels on the evening news of what you did there, but you did it. Is it different when you play college volleyball? They actually teach you there's a sequence called bump, set, and spike. Maybe you've heard it, you know? There's an order to things. You stop the momentum of the ball. Somebody sets the ball and somebody drives it over, ideally to get a point. Now my wife also played college ball. And she got out there and she wanted to be the hitter. The hitter is the one who gets to drive that ball to the floor. Now here's the problem, if you know my wife, She's not an Amazon, okay? She's like five foot three wearing heels standing on an orange crate. That's Amber. She's not gonna be the hitter, but she wanted to do it so bad. She's like, I know I can hit though, coach. Put me in as the hitter. Well, he didn't. He trained her instead to be the middleman. She wasn't the one who stopped the momentum of the ball. She's not the one who drove it over. She was the setter. She's the setup person. And she would just boop for somebody else to steal the glory, if you will. And drive the ball to the floor. She resented that position for the longest time. She didn't want to play that position. It's not where she wanted to be. But the coach recognized, given the abilities God has given you, girl, uh, and your diminutive height, this is where you belong. And you know what? She became one of the best setters on the team, eventually even the captain of her team in in, uh, her senior year of college. But she had to submit herself under the coach and trust his professional opinion of her abilities and what role she should be playing on the team. Her submitting herself underneath the coach is that prefix, hupo, which means under. It means to arrange yourself in an orderly way underneath the authority of somebody. That's hupotasso. That's all it means. Now, there's no inferior superior on the volleyball team. There's simply the team wins or the team loses. Every position is important, but it only works if all of us are submitted to that coach and we go where he tells us to go, we play the position he tells us to play, and and understanding he put us there because that's where our strengths lie. And that's that's what it means for a wife to hupotasso, to submit herself under her husband. She is not less than him. She is not inferior to him. It's just an orderly arrangement of things. And this needs to be said here too. This word hupotasso, it's in the Greek middle voice. Now, it doesn't mean a whole lot to us in English here because we don't have voice in our words in English. But in the Greek, you have voice, which in this particular case, the middle voice indicates that the object itself is causing itself to do something. In this particular case, it's the woman that willingly, voluntarily submits herself under her husband. It comes from within her, not from outside. Why is that important to say? It's not, and this needs to be said, men, it's not your job to make your wife submit to you. It's no man's job to subjugate a woman to make her follow you. Submission, therefore, is a gift that a woman voluntarily gives her husband to allow him to lead her. You don't have to make her follow you. By the way, that's why our English here, we don't have voice. It'll say, submit yourselves. That yourselves isn't in the Greek. It's it's an English additive so that we understand the motivation to submit oneself comes from with her, not from the man. It's a gift that she voluntarily gives to him. 
And when you do it right, frankly, you don't really even notice that a home is submissive or that a wife is submissive to her husband, that he's sacrificing himself for his wife. You, all you see is beauty. It's like watching figure skating. You ever watch figure skating, pairs figure skating? Uh, my wife loves it, so when the Olympics come on, we're not watching the, the downhill slalom or the luge. We're watching couples skating, and that's not my thing, but I do it for her sake. It's basically dancing with blades on your feet on ice, and so you've got this couple here, and you've got a man, and he's, nobody cares about the man, by the way. He's dressed in black. He's meant to fade into the background. He's a prop. And then you have this beautiful woman all just in this regalia like a peacock and she's coming out and she's gorgeous and she's just flowing. And the whole show, you know, they're dancing just in harmony with one another. Their actions mirror one another, don't they? Most of the time. But there is still a leading and following mechanic in couple skating, isn't there? But it's gentle. It's almost imperceptible. He'll just kind of look at her or maybe he'll just have a, he'll throw a hand out. And she's looking for that hand. She's anticipating the hand. And so he's throwing that, that leadership out there and she's willingly taking it. And then what does he do with that leadership? Exalt himself? What does he do? What does the man do? He lifts up the woman for everybody to see. Or he'll pick her up and he will twirl her and everybody's, they don't care about that dude in the black. They're watching the girl like spin 15 times before she hits the ground, you know. And, and it's just, a, it's a thing of beauty. And when we watch pairs skating, we don't go, would you look at that? It's another symbol of the patriarch here. That man is following. I wanna see, I wanna go to Olympics one time where I see the woman pick up the man and throw him. Actually, I would. That would be fun. <clears throat> what would happen? Ladies, what would, I mean, unless you are doping on steroids, what would happen if the woman said, you know what, we're done. I'm wearing the black today and I'm gonna pick this man up and I'm gonna throw you in the air. What's gonna happen in the Olympic uh, trials there? They're gonna flunk out. We're gonna watch a, a train wreck as they just you know, collide and fall because God, sorry ladies, but God gave men testosterone, which tends to give them greater upper body strength. It's why we put him in the black. He's the one picking up the woman. But he doesn't use that strength to glorify himself. He lifts up the woman, and we all, we're all watching her. And in marriage, it should be the same way. That it's almost imperceptible. When you have a healthy functioning marriage, you don't have a man oppressing a woman. You have a woman <clears throat> voluntarily lining herself up with this man, he gives gentle cues. He's not rough, he's not mean, he's not abusive. He, there's just gentle cues and there's agreed upon things that they practiced out earlier and they work together as a flowing team. In a healthy marriage, you don't think of inferior, superior, inferior and things like that. You, you just see a beautiful couple doing the dance of life well. And so submission is not an admission to be a second-class figure. Nobody looks down on the female figure skater. In fact, she's the only one you're looking at. It's not an admission of inferiority. Did you know that submission happens even within the Godhead? Oh, it does. When I say the Godhead, who am I talking about? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now, are, all, are each parts of the Godhead all God? Yes. Are they all equally God? Yes. Now, some of the cults are gonna tell you otherwise, but they're equally God. Remember, the Holy Spirit is called God, Acts 5, and nice and fire. He says, you have lied unto the Holy Spirit, you have lied unto God. Jesus, the Bible says in, <clears throat> excuse me, Colossians 
It says 2.9, it says that in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All that makes God, God is in Jesus. And yet, there's something we call the doctrine of procession. They proceed from God the Father sent Jesus, didn't he? That indicates authority. God gave a command. For God so loved the world that he sent, he gave his only son. Jesus says, I have been sent into the world as I have been sent by God, so send I you. So Jesus is sent by God. In fact, at Gethsemane, what does he pray? If there's any way to do this, God, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was submissive to the Father. Do you look down on Jesus for that? Anybody here want, think Jesus is a lesser being for that? No, we don't. What we see is a divinely created order of things, equal but different. Truly, a submissive spirit is what's supposed to describe all believers. If you look at the verse that comes right before all of these, Ephesians chapter five, verse 21, what does he say? That all believers are actually to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's talking to the whole church at large. He's saying that believers in general, when we trust God, that he is sovereign, that he is in control, I don't have to be in control. I don't have to control my life. I don't have to control people. I can trust him with them. And that makes us a very yielding and submissive people. Not my will be done, but God's. And so my showing love for you means that I'm not looking out for my own interests only, but also for the interests of other people. And so as a church, we're supposed to be a yielding people to one another. We're not just all fighting to get our way. Not if we're yielded to the Spirit of God. However, I do need to say this, because this comes one verse before we start talking about marriages, some people mistakenly believe that Ephesians 5.21 is talking about an egalitarian marriage versus a complementarian marriage. You know the difference, right? Complementarian means we're, we're, we're equal but different. Egalitarian means we're the same. We're equal, and we are equal before God. But it's saying that there's no difference between men and women at all within the marriage. That's not what the Bible teaches. But some will misattribute Ephesians 5.21 to talking about the home. And he'll talk about mutual submission. Now granted, the husband lays down his life for his wife, more on that next week, and the wife willingly submits to her husband's leadership but the Bible does not teach that mutual submission. Ephesians 5.21 is not talking to the husband and wife. That's why he has to say wives, husbands. He's changing the subject matter. He says church, submit to one another, but in the home. He's asking wives and husbands to do specific things that God has given them to do in their roles. I want to say too, before we move on to point number two, submission is not a personality type. I've talked to some ladies before, they've been in our counseling office, and they'll say, oh, he knew what he was getting into when he married me. He knew I was a redhead, you know, <laughs> or he knew I was Italian. I'm just being authentic to who I am. I just say it like it is. I don't, you know, he, he knew I was strong and fiery, so he knew what he was getting into. Is that an excuse, a personality type, or a hair color? This is a command for all people and for all homes that there's a certain way that God has ordered the home. Uh, let me tell you, you can be a strong, gifted leader as a woman and still be a godly, submissive wife to your husband. You know you can do that? Those of you who know my wife, Amber, know that she's not that quiet little girl that sits in the corner, okay? She is one of the most gifted, natural leaders that I've ever met. 
She has the ability to, she works hard, she sacrifices herself, she knows where something needs to go, she knows how to arrange and communicate with people in a way to move them toward a common vision. She's an extremely gifted leader, but you know what? In the last 26 or seven, is it seven now? I've been married a while. <laughs> in that time, she has never challenged me for the leadership of my home, never once. She has always willingly given me the permission to be the leader of the home. And I thank God for that. And men, it, if you have a wife who's like that too, you know what I'm talking about. She's a gifted leader, but somehow, for some weird reason, she allows you to play the role that God gave you to play. And so it's not a personality type. We're gonna see number two here, that submission recognizes a God-ordained order. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. Notice the Bible says that the man is, or the husband is the head of the wife, not that he should be. What does that mean for us? It means that his position of head is not something he has to earn. I know that doesn't set well with people because I hear even Christians saying, oh, I told my husband, if you want me to follow you, you gotta earn that. You know, and, and people are out in the Facebook like, that's right, girl, you tell them, you let them know what, you know. That sounds good to the world. But here he says the husband is the head of the wife. He doesn't say he should be, or that if he's good enough, maybe grant him that in time if you think it's okay. He just simply seems, says to acknowledge this to be true. And this needs to be said. Women, this is harder for some of you than others. Some of you are married to a very gifted, godly man who lays down his life for you. He puts you first. He elevates you like that figure skater does his partner. And it's easy to follow a man like that. And there's some other men who are, frankly, weak leaders. They're not leading at all. And I think quite often this is why often we see some wives kind of leading their home. It's not that they want to, it's they feel like they have to because the husband just isn't doing a doggone thing. And he's just letting head do whatever you want. And he just, he works and then he comes home and then all his time is about him. And so this is much harder to apply, let me acknowledge, if you're married to an indigent man who just isn't walking with God, he's not putting you first, he's not doing much with the kids, it's hard to follow a fellow like that. What does it mean to be the head of, the church, the head of his wife? He gives us a comparison so that we understand what that looks like. He says, husbands are the head, is the head of the wife even as what? Christ is the head of the church. How is Christ the head of this church? By the way, to say that Christ is the head of the church means that, you know what, I am not the head of this church. It also means you're not either as a collective voting body. Our goal is not to impose our will on the church. Our goal as a church, as a pastor, all the way through to the entire congregation, our goal is not to impose our will on the church, to force an agenda at the church. What is our goal? Our goal is to discern what is the will of the head. We read God's word and we try to make sure that the church is everything Jesus wants it to be. And we anticipate the desires of Jesus. And we try to bring that church into conformity with what pleases Jesus. That's what it means to make Jesus the head, to acknowledge that he is the head. I know what he desires and I anticipate his desires. We follow his desires. My goal is to please him. He says, in that way, 
The husband is the head of the wife. She anticipates his desires. She's not trying to go around his back and do something different, knowing full well he hates this, or full well he disagrees with this. He doesn't agree with this purchase, but you're gonna save up money and make these secretive purchases on the side. Or you're gonna say one thing to your husband to his face, but to the kids, you're running dad down. By the way, if you ever want your kids to respect and obey your dad, you can't talk badly about the dad to the kids, not even if, they're, not even if you're divorced. You gotta protect those kids' hearts. And so he is the head, she is anticipating both publicly and privately his desires. It's like that figure skating couple. That woman, she's looking for those signals. They're dancing, but she's looking, and there it is, there's the hand. And she's reaching out for it because she wants to live and work in a harmonious way with this couple. And when it's done well, it's beautiful. The truth is, if you would ask a woman, she wants him to be strong. Even the most staunch, staunch feminists, like uh, Gloria Steinem said in an in a interview one time, she said, we are now becoming the men we always wanted to marry. Implication, strong. No woman wants to be married to a weak man who never has an opinion, who never takes initiative, who never leads, who never guides the spirit, family spiritually, who never makes sure that the family's going to church, it's always the mom, who never opens the Bible, it's always mom, who never volunteers to pray with the family, it's always mom. Women, we, we, y'all, women want strong men. They want them to be like Jesus because God says he is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of church and is its savior. Men, not that you save your wife, but we're supposed to be strong. We're supposed to be sacrificial in laying down our life for our wife. I've always said, if there's enough food for one of you to live and one of you to die, men, you're the person who gives your wife the food and you, you suffer to the glory of God. You have one car, one that breaks down, and one that's brand new and nice, guess which one you give your wife? You give her the good car. When you're walking down a sidewalk, man, there's a reason historically we put women on the inside of the sidewalk, we stand on the outside, why is that? Because when cars come by and there's, there's junk and mud and danger on the side of the road, we're gonna take the danger. If a car jumps a curb and hits somebody, it's gonna be me, not her. That's what loving sacrificial leadership looks like. And women, frankly, that's what it looks like to submit to a godly man. It's that you allow him to put you first. Nobody phrases it like that, but that's really what it is. You allow him to put you first. Let's look at a few characteristics of submission. A, it's not the result of the fall. You'll hear people say that, oh, submission, man, if we hadn't fallen, you know, as if it's a part of the fall. It predates the fall. But I will say this, the fall makes submission a lot more difficult. When God created man and woman, you look back at creation in Genesis 1 and 2, God created all the animals. He wanted to take hyenas. He just raised them up out of the ground, threw men and women out together, and just like, well, they'll follow their programming. Same thing with giraffes and cheetahs and manatees and goldfish. But how did God create people? different than animals in his image. And when he created man and woman, what'd he do first? Did he create man and woman at the exact same time? Trivia question, some of you are confused. No, he did not, did he? He created the man first, and Paul will appeal to this later, by the way, in 1 Timothy 2. He created the man first. That's odd, that broke tradition. He created the man first and then gave the man the command to work, which what does that also indicate? The primary breadwinner of the home is who? Man, the primary responsibility to work and tend the ground and care for things, it's the husband. I'm not saying wives can't work, that's your honor to do so, but uh, the husband doesn't get a choice. And so God commands him to work, but then what else does God do before he creates the woman? 
gives him the spiritual command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. And then when he created woman, did he just pick up a dirt ball like he did the man and breathe life into her? How did God create the woman? Differently than any other creation. He took her from the man, from his ribs. Why do you think that is? Do you think God was thinking, eh, I'm done making holes in the ground. I'm just gonna take a rib over here. He, he won't miss that. Why did God take the woman from the man? It's to show that they belong together, that they are one flesh and that she is part of him. God calls her a helpmeet, a, a helper suitable or meet for, his, for, the, for the needs of the home. Now, I know I understand how, how counterculture this is to our society we live in, but it's in God's word. And so God created man, gave him the command to work and to spiritually lead, and then he created the woman, and when he did, he took her from the man, understanding that she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. The idea is that the man should care for her as his own flesh. More on that next week. And so, no, it's not a part of the fall, but when the fall of man happened and we decided to take hold of that fruit and eat and disobey God, did that have some certain curses that went along with it? God cursed the man according to some of the, his responsibilities. Now, when you go out and you work the ground, you know, Tom, when you pull out that chainsaw and you're cutting down trees, you're gonna be sweating now. And you're gonna be dealing with thorns. It wasn't that way pre-fall. Work was a lot easier, but in the work that God gave Tom to do, he's gonna make it harder on you. Sorry, Tom, that was God, not me. But when he went to the woman, he had a different set of curses. He didn't immediately curse her with the ground because that wasn't her primary role. Sure, she may help him on the farm, but that wasn't her primary role, but he cursed her in a different way. He said to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Those of you women who have had children, you can amen that. Uh, in pain, you shall bring forth children. And then he says this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The part of the fall was that desire. Now, some of your old translations may say your desire shall be for your husband, misleading some commentaries to say that as a part of the fall, a woman will have this inordinate physical desire to be intimate with her husband. Is that a curse? That's a prayer request. A desire shall be for your husband. No, the ESV got it right. It's your desire will be contrary to your husband, but you will allow him to rule over you. By the way, if you're wondering still if that's what it means, look at the next chapter in Genesis chapter four. God uses the same Hebrew construction to describe Cain. Remember when Cain, God said, Offer me a, give me a sacrifice. Cain offered him his own works, his corn, his soybeans, Abel offered God a blood sacrifice, which is what he asked for, and God was not pleased with Cain, and Cain was mad at Abel. What do you want to do? I want to kill him. And God saw that in his heart, and God warned Cain, and God said in Genesis 4, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is, to, is for you. It's to consume you, to control you, but you must rule over that thing that wants to overpower you. Exact same Hebrew construction. So what's he communicating in Genesis 3? That as a part of the fall, our, a woman's natural fleshly desire is going to be to want to assume leadership and control the home. You say, that's not me. I don't know what you're talking about. We're not talking about you. We're talking about everybody else God talked about in Genesis 3. You may be as a woman, a godly submitted person. Great. You've worked through that. Not all women have. 
There's some who are still very resistant to this idea. They're very hostile to this idea. But God says you must give him that gift of being able to lead the home. And by the way, men, if you have a woman who is, again, submissive to you because she gives you the leadership of the home, she allows you to lead, you bless God for her. She is fighting desires that are inside of her that when she sees mistakes and failures that we always do, that we do as men, as we're leading, we don't do it perfectly, she is fighting desires to want to take over and do it her way. If you've got a godly submissive wife at home, you need to take her out this week. Longhorn Steakhouse is opening up this week. You go out and you buy her, I don't know, some big, thick, two-inch USDA prime Delmonico steak, and you spend 30 bucks on her, and you get her whatever she wants, and you thank God. You look her in the eye and say, I know I'm not the most gifted leader that you could have ever married. I want to thank you for following me anyway. You didn't have to. It's a voluntary submission. You, you allow me to lead, and you make me feel respected, and I want to thank you for that gift because I realize you didn't have to give it. Let's look B here. Older women are to teach younger women what submission is. The best place to teach this is not here on Sunday morning, but why do we do it? Because the Bible says I need to teach the whole counsel of God. But ideally, older women are to teach younger women this. It says in Titus 2, 3 through 5, they, the older women, are to teach what is good so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be reviled. This, best, this is a message best taught by women to women, which by the way is why we have things like coffee and conversations going on this week. We'll, we'll announce it at the end of the service. I encourage you to be a part of that. It's women encouraging women how to live a godly life together. You're not on your own. Now let me ask you women, how can you tell if your husband feels respected by you? Well, when he takes you out for steak this week, you can ask him, do, do I make you feel respected in this home? Do you feel like I allow you to be the leader of the home? Do you feel like I speak respectfully to and of you? And then just listen. If he's hesitant to talk, you may have to encourage him and just let him know, I'm not gonna criticize you for what you say. I'm not gonna hold it against you. I'm not gonna interrupt you. I'm just gonna listen. He may or may not tell you. Are there any other ways you can tell if a man feels respected in his home? There's something that my wife and I, when we teach marriage and parenting in a conference, we'll teach the rooftop principle and the desert principle. Proverbs 21 verse nine says, it is better to dwell or to live in the corner of a housetop than a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And usually we read that verse and we laugh and we chuckle, um, but it's actually teaching something here. A quarrelsome wife is somebody who is quick to fight. They're quick to argue. They're quick to point out your flaws. It's a woman who is blaming you for where they are in life. She's second guessing your every decision. She's talking about all the ways that you failed in the past. She's pulling the guy's confidence down. And no wonder he doesn't want to lead. He's too afraid that you're going to criticize. He's like, fine, you do better, go for it. It says he will flee to rooftops and deserts if he feels like he is in a home like that. A man, by the way, ladies, let me give you a little hint, insight to the man's soul. A man will fight another man for you. If there's a man who came into my house, I will pick up any kind of blunt object I can find, and I will protect my wife to the death. But I will not fight my wife for the leadership of the home. 
A godly man will not fight his wife. He waits for her to willingly give that to him as, as a gift. But a man won't fight you, but what will a man do? Will a man dwell somewhere where he feels continually dishonored and disrespected? He will not. He will find somewhere else to go. In this case, the corner of a rooftop, and we think it's a joke, but the Bible's being serious. Don't, when we say rooftop, don't think your little gabled roof deal that you got at the house with shingles on it. The, the Jewish houses, they would have these flat rooftops, and you would go up there, and you made dry you know, herbs and fruits and things up there on the rooftop. You would go up there, when things would get really warm and you would enjoy the cool of an evening breeze, you'd watch the sunset on your roof. It's where you would go to get this beautiful outlook over the whole city. It's a place where you might go to be alone, just to be with your thoughts. What he's saying here is, if you've got a husband who feels disrespected in his home and he's with someone who's continually contentious and quarrelsome, ladies, you can tell because one of the symptoms is that brother's gonna avoid being around you. Even when you're at home, he's gonna to try to be in another room. And if he can't be in another room, he's gonna be outside. And he may be in the garage or he'll be in the yard. And I'm not just talking about a, an industrious husband. I'm talking about you can tell in your heart he avoids you. Even when you're around, he refuses to engage with you. Sometimes that's a selfish husband. Sometimes it's because there's contention there and he doesn't wanna face the disrespect that comes from having a, an opinion that differs from you and it's too painful, and so he just avoids it. And if that isn't strong enough, Proverbs 21, 19 says, if the roof isn't far enough, he'll go to a desert place. It's better to dwell in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Fretful, uh, we talked about quarrelsome is, fretful means easily provoked to anger. She just instantly gets mad and snippy about everything. It says that will drive a man, the house isn't far enough, if I go to the roof, you might show up. So guess what? I'm gonna go far away. Desert land, this Hebrew word is the same one used to describe Israel when they left Egypt and they wandered around in a desert place. It's a place where there's no people. And so sometimes men will go off to be, I'm giving away trade secrets of men, by the way. I fully expect to be dead by sundown. And men, we will, we'll do this. We will get a second job. We'll work extra hours. We'll join a bowling league. We'll coach little league, even though I know nothing about baseball, simply because I don't have to go home where I'm confronted by disrespect and dishonor. I'm just avoiding the contention. Is it right? No, but it's what a man will do because he's not gonna fight you. He's simply going to avoid the disrespect. Again, some of this may be indicators of a selfish husband. It's up to a couple to discern and to determine Husbands, am I being loving and sacrificial to her? Wives, am I being kind and respectful to him? It's two ways. It's a dance. It takes two healthy dance partners to make this thing work. Number three, submission is extensive but limited by God. Look at verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In everything is extensive. It means in all areas of your life, there's not little compartments of your marriage which say, we're together on this. I'll follow him on this, but I won't follow him over here. I'm not going to anticipate his desires over here. I'm not going to respect him in this arena of my life. It's extensive. It's in everything. But our text here also limits that submission. He, in everything, A, does not mean all women to all men. What does the text say? Wives submit in everything to who? Their husbands. So this isn't, a, this isn't advocating a patriarchal society. This isn't all women are lower than all men or all women are submissive to all men in all situations. Ladies, you wanna go out and be the mayor, go for it. If you're part of this church, I'll probably vote for you, you know? 
You want to go out and own your own business? That's between you, the Lord, and uh, you know your husband, and as a family, just whether or not you can do that. Nobody's holding you back. This is not advocating a patriarchy. This is also not advocating men looking down on women. That's never gonna be a part of this church, by the way. Men, if you are of a spirit where there's a good old boys club where the men are up here and the ladies are down here, that's an old thing that needs to die. We're grateful for the women who do the ministry in this church. They are dear sisters. They are co-equal heirs with Jesus Christ. And we do not treat them poorly simply because they're ladies. We do not talk down to women just because they're women. This is not a patriarchy. This is wives to husbands, so it's limited. But it's limited elsewhere. B, in everything does not include submitting to sin. Ladies, if you have your husband who is living in sin, he is, uh, I don't know, he's dealing drugs, he's got a meth lab in your basement, you don't go help him out just to be a good helpmeet. You know, if he's doing something illegal, he's cheating on his taxes, you don't have to sign off on that. You don't have to join him in your sin. You say, well, 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 God tells me I have to. God doesn't tell you that you have to help your husband in his illegal underground cockfighting arena that he you know, started in the barn. You say, but God told me to submit to my husband in everything. You know, the apostles were once told in Acts 5 not to preach the gospel anymore. And in Acts 5.29, what they end up telling these people? He says, it is better to obey God than men. The only time, ladies, so there is provisions for submission. You don't submit to your husbands when he's limiting your ability to follow God, when he's limiting your ability, uh, or he's causing you to sin. God is the higher authority here. But this is the only time that we just civil disobedient. As a church, we will follow everything the government gives us to do. But if they tell us not to share the gospel, it ends there. It is better to obey God than men. And so don't, don't follow ladies. In fact, can you think of an example in the Bible of a woman who submitted to her husband and was punished for it? You're gonna like this one. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter five? They sold, everybody was selling land. It was, it was just kind of a thing the church was doing. There were a lot of needs in the church, so everybody's selling land. They're bringing all the proceeds forward. And so Ananias had a piece of like property somewhere and they sold it for a certain amount, but they decided we want to give, but we're going to keep back some for ourselves, which was their right to do so. But then they told everybody, this was everything. We gave it all for Jesus. Amen. Glory to him, not me, but we gave it all. And Ananias confirmed that to the whole church publicly, and Peter told him, why are you lying to the Spirit, lying to God? You're dead. He died, and they carried him out. The wife comes in, and they give her a chance to do things right. Will you submit to what your husband said? Will you follow him in sin? She did, and she died. So no, ladies, you don't follow your husbands into sin. You follow God first. And I want to say this finally. In, uh, see, in everything does not include physical abuse. This has to be said in our culture. Some men can be controlling, can't they? Ladies, don't amen too loud. Don't elbow him, by the way. But some men are out there and they're controlling. Everything has to be done their way. I mean, how you dress, he like looks you over and he approves your earrings and your outfits and he does all the decorating, the cooking, he does the cleaning, he does the work, everything. You're just a kept woman. Men, we're not supposed to be controlling people. And some men are so controlling that if they can't use their voice to control the woman, 
He'll raise his voice and he'll become verbally abusive. And if that doesn't work, he's gonna revert to the law of the jungle. He'll become Darwinian, survival of the fittest. The strong, might makes right, the strong makes the rules. And some men are so depraved that if he cannot control the woman, if he can't trust God with her and wait for her to willingly give that leadership to him because he's a loving and sacrificial husband, he will force her to do what he wishes through might. Men, if that's you, can I tell you, that needs to stop yesterday. How does God feel about violence in general? Psalm 11.5 says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and he hates the one who loves violence. What does God think about using violence in your home? You, let, you take a woman into your home and when you enter into a covenant, and back then often they would put a garment around her, the husband would put his garment around her. In other words, it was showing that you're coming under me and I'm going to protect you. I'm gonna provide for you. I'm gonna protect you. I'm gonna guard you. And you're gonna cover that garment with violence? God hates that kind of violence. The text goes even further than I'm willing to say. It says God hates you who are violent to people, especially a mate who's supposed to trust you. Women, you don't stay under a violent man. If any of you are being abused right now, you're probably not taking action fast enough. I'll tell you that right now, just firsthand. I've dealt with too many women. Statistically speaking, you can beat a woman six times before she'll leave you. Women, that's six times too many. If, you, if I even hear a whiff of a man hurting a woman in this church, it's not just gonna be me talking to you. I'm gonna show up with Johnny Law on my side. I am legally bound to report it, and I will, and I've done it, I'll do it again. One of my previous churches, there were, it came to our ears that there was a man, ex-Marine, who was beating his wife. So we went over to his house. I didn't go alone, by the way. He's an ex-Marine. I'm not, <laughs> okay? So I took with me a Special Forces Golden Gloves boxer. Bible says, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. So I was the dove, he was the serpent. And so we go over there and we, we rescue this lady. We pack her bags. Actually, I packed the bags and my Golden Glove boxer just kind of stood there like a bouncer, but... We packed her bags and we moved her out. Now, I didn't say divorce, but there is time for biblical separation. Women, just, you don't have to think through all the particulars and details, but get out of the blast radius. You are not a, a godly woman for submitting to abuse in the home and submitting your children to the abuse of your husband. You get out and you get help. If you need someone to help you in that, you feel free to call the church office. We have people here who want to help you. Furthermore, we've got a number. I'm gonna throw it on the screen. For those of you who are at home and you're listening to this, if you're in an abusive relationship, here's a hotline you can call. For those women who are in abusive relationships, there are places that you can stay in, until you can get things right. And notice, I'm not pushing divorce. Sometimes it's simply counseling that is needed. But you don't go back and submit yourself under an abusive man. There are limitations to this. Now, in closing, let me just say to the men, what we just shared this morning is a very difficult message for our wives to hear. It's hard. In fact, I'm probably gonna get some emails this week. <laughs> it's a hard message. So guys, this is not a message for you to go home and preach a second time to your wife. This is not a checklist for you to hold her up to and said, well, babe, were you even in church today? Did you even hear Sunday morning sermon? You know, where we just kind of rake them over the coals with the Bible. This is something that you sit back and you let God work with them and you wait for her to be 
voluntarily respectful to you. It's not something we hold her to. And ladies, <laughs> this is part one. Part two is next week. Don't you let your husband all of a sudden say he's got to work overtime next weekend. He's going to find every reason to be gone. He's going to want to go camping, hunting, fishing, hiking. He may even try to trick you and offer you a romantic weekend getaway somewhere next week. Don't you let him trick you like that. You bring dance lessons back again next Sunday, 1045 a.m. Ladies, bring your husbands with you because when you understand the other side of the dance, you're going to view this whole procedure as something that is beautiful and is, is graceful, just like watching pairs figure skating. There's no inferior and superior. There's simply a beautiful couple doing things God's way, enjoying the dance of life the way God intended them to. And can I tell you, if you're willing to do it God's way, if your home isn't that way now, God can restore your home to make it that way. But you have to bring your husbands back next week to find out. Father, we thank you this morning as we close this morning in prayer. We're just grateful for the love that you have shown us in giving us an example through Christ, how he loved the church. You have shown us how we can love our wives and how the church submits to Christ. You've given an example to the wives as to how they can be respectful to their husbands. God, my sincerest prayer is that as a church, we would have couples that are such a shining example of love and grace of Jesus that when we go out in the community and people are always asking us, why is your home so different? Why are you happy? Why do you hold hands? Why does your husband put his arm around you? Why do you spend time together that we can point them to Jesus and say, the only difference is Christ is in our home. We are doing things God's way and you can know him too. God, make our homes a gospel tract that people can read from afar off and witness the love of Jesus and his grace. We just ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, Remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. As promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland.